everyone deserves to live somewhere where they feel safe and where their family is and where they can live a fulfilling life, regardless of what they've done in the past. Hi, Changemaker. This is Jesse Coleman, and you're listening to Miking Change, a podcast that puts a microphone to the stories that matter. Today, I'm joined by Emma Reckart, a supervising attorney at the Northwest Immigrant Rights Project. The Northwest Immigrant Rights Project's mission is to promote justice by defending and advancing the rights of immigrants through direct legal services, systemic advocacy, and community education. Emma has been a staff attorney there for four years and currently supervises the Legal Orientation Program, a program designed to educate detained immigrants about their legal rights, their legal options, and what they can expect when they appear in court. Prior to law school, she taught high school chemistry and English as a second language for two years in Nashville, Tennessee. Emma earned her undergraduate degree from Georgetown University and her JD from Harvard Law School. Well, hi, Emma. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Thank you so much for joining for me. Sure. So uh, you work for a little organization called Northwest Immigration Rights Project. Yes. What is it? What What is that org do? Um, so we are a legal services nonprofit uh, here in Washington State. Um, we have four offices, one in Seattle, one in Tacoma, which is the office that I work for. And then there are two Eastern Washington offices as well, one in Wenatchee and one in Granger. Um, and basically our mission is to, um, you know, advance immigrant rights. And we do that through direct representation. So, you know, representing detained and non-detained immigrants in court and in other applications for immigration relief. Um, also, we do some systemic advocacy, so like impact litigation and policy advocacy and things like that. Um, and then community education is sort of like the last thing that we do as well. Yeah, so it sounds like you guys are busy. Very busy. Um, and so you you got your law degree from a little school called, called Harvard. <laughs> I did. Um, and uh, you choose to fight for the rights of immigrants. And, and I, I, I'm curious as to why. Why, why is that uh, your, your choice of direction? Yeah, I mean, in terms of my choice to pursue immigration law, um, I knew before law school that I wanted to work in public interest law of some kind, uh, but I wasn't totally set on exactly what that would be, what that would look like. Um, I was sort of debating between criminal defense, so public defense, um, immigration defense, and um, prisoners' rights more broadly. And I think my interest in those three areas has been based on some past work experiences, but also just because I feel like those are some of the most, you know, oppressive legal systems that we have in in the United States, in this country, and, and some systems that have the most lasting negative effects on people and communities. And they're also very interrelated. So a lot of the same people are affected by more than one of those systems. Um, But to be honest, my ultimate decision to go into immigration law as opposed to those other two fields was largely based on the fact that the 2016 election happened my last year of law school. So that would have been the fall of my third year. 
I was doing a little bit of three chess in my mind about, you know, where I felt um, the need would be greatest over the next four years. And basically due to some unique features of immigration law, mainly the fact that there's a lot of power that's vested in the executive branch, you know, in the presidency, um, I decided that that was where I should start because I felt like there would be a high need for immigration lawyers during the first and hopefully only four years of the Trump administration. So that was the, that was one of the main factors in my decision-making process. Yeah, absolutely. I um, That year, I had fallen in love with a woman from India. And uh, when Trump got elected, I realized that... I, I legitimately felt like our relationship could be threatened Definitely. in the sense that we could be pulled apart at any time on the whim of, of someone yeah. who was calling immigrants um, animals, among other atrocious names. And so uh, that is actually when I first got introduced to immigration, really immigration. I mean, I, I had always grown up around immigrants, mm -hmm. um, people that grew up in refugee camps and things like that, but I had never fully understood just how much of a process in ordeal immigrating to the United States is um, until uh, my now wife and I went through it together. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious how you see, because we have the U.S. immigration system that we see on TV, mm -hmm. in the media, we hear things like uh, immigrants are stealing our jobs, they don't pay their taxes, um, and we hear elected officials use de dehumanizing terms. But what do you see the realities of the immigration system and immigrants in general as? Yeah. Um... To be honest, I feel like I don't really keep up with immigration news via most media outlets these days, uh, just because I feel like that's a little bit, a little bit too much immigration content for me sometimes. Um, but I will say that, in my view, there are sort of two main narratives in the public discourse around immigration, and the first one is kind of like what you described, um, one that. I associate with more of a right-wing kind of like xenophobic ideology. And I think a lot of people who identify as liberal or progressive can see how that narrative is problematic and also inaccurate. Um, but even within liberal and progressive circles, there's this other narrative that I think is also really problematic that basically establishes a dichotomy between quote unquote, like deserving and undeserving immigrants. So a lot of people, you know, including Democrats, and honestly, especially them, um, put forth, put forth this narrative that there are certain people like dreamers, or like, you know, victims of domestic violence, or asylum seekers that have no criminal history and that are fleeing violence. Um, that those people are deserving of benefits and of status in our society. But there are these other immigrants that are, you know, like the quote unquote criminal aliens that should be prioritized for removal or deportation. 
Um, and I think we sort of got there because we have been so desperate for some sort of incremental change that we were okay with prioritizing one group over another. But I think that this has a really negative long-term effect uh, of dehumanizing certain people. And I mean, the reality is that people are really nuanced in their life experiences um, and everyone is deserving of, you know, human dignity, regardless of what they've done in the past. And that's something that I see in the media a lot and something that I really hope that we can start to move away from. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think what I'm understanding you say is that we, the left tends to split it up into the good and the bad immigrants and that we want to make sure there's pathways for the good immigrants to come in, but the bad immigrants, we want to, you know, keep them from, from accessing um, our resources. And so, I mean, I think that goes into like, what are the rights that, that immigrants actually have? Like, because we know, um, for example, the sixth amendment, guarantees a right to a lawyer for criminal defendants here who are U.S. citizens. Um, Are immigrants afforded that same right? So no, um, immigrants are not afforded that same legal right. Um, There was a landmark case in criminal law. It's called Gideon v. Wainwright, and that was the case that established the right to counsel for anyone who's accused of a crime. But since immigration proceedings are civil proceedings, that case does not apply. So I mean, there are certain individuals that do have a right to counsel in some parts of the country. So, for example, in the Ninth Circuit, which is the legal jurisdiction where we are here in Washington, individuals who are deemed to be um, to have indicia of mental incompetence um, can be appointed attorneys. But, you know, that determination of whether someone qualifies for the program is made by an immigration judge who is not a mental health professional. Um, so there's a lot of issues with that program. But by and large, no, immigrants do not have the right to counsel. Um, so, yeah, that's that's not a right that that they enjoy. How does I, I mean, you're working with cases um all the time like this how does it how does that not having legal counsel affect someone someone's case i mean i think it has a huge impact it's it's really hard to say definitively exactly numerically what the impact is i mean there are statistics that talk about how individuals who are represented i think are five times more likely to pursue relief and five times more likely to win their cases if they are represented But obviously there is some selection bias in there because most nonprofit organizations like like the Northwest Immigrant Rights Project work based on a triage model. So, you know, for example, we wouldn't necessarily represent somebody who did not have interest in fighting their case and just wanted to accept a removal order. So because of that, the data is a little bit skewed, but the effect is substantial. I mean, Immigration law is very, very complicated. Um, Even, you know, the attorneys that I work with, we have a really, really hard time keeping up with all of the new developments. Everything has to be submitted to court in English. Many immigrants don't speak English. They don't have access to interpreters when they're not in court. So they, you know, they can't have interpreters help them fill out applications, things like that. It just, it's not hard to see how 
having a trained legal professional who's fluent in English would have would make a huge difference in your ability to succeed in court for sure. Absolutely. And so what are some of the circumstances your clients are finding themselves in? Um, so we work with a wide variety of people. Um, some individuals have had status in the United States for a while and they've been placed in immigration proceedings and removal proceedings for one reason or another. Maybe they've um, picked up an arrest or a criminal conviction um, or something like that. Um, there are other individuals who have recently crossed the southern border and they've been shipped up to Washington because there's no bed space at the border detention facilities. Um, a lot of those individuals are um, asylum seekers fleeing violence in their home countries. And then there are other individuals who have been living undocumented in the United States for a while and sort of trying to fly under the radar, but they've been recently picked up for one reason or another as well. So we do see a, a very wide variety of cases. Um, so, so through this work, you've had a lot of exposure with, with uh, people who are living life undocumented. But what, what does that look like for someone who's not familiar with it at all? Like, what are the realities yeah, I mean, I can't personally speak to that. I don't have any personal experience um, living in the United States undocumented, or I, I haven't had family that have had those experiences. But I do know from clients that it is truly a constant source of fear and anxiety, um, like a daily source of fear and anxiety. So I was recently speaking with my client's teenage daughter about her childhood growing up with a father that was undocumented. And she was explaining to me that every day when he left for work, she was terrified that he wasn't going to come home, that he, there was going to be a raid at his workplace, or that he was going to be arrested for driving without a license because he was too scared to get a license because he didn't have status, or that ICE was going to pick him up on the way home from work. So I just, I mean, I can't even imagine all of the trauma that that those families go through having, having, you know, parents or children that are undocumented. Um, it's also just really, really, it's really hard. We made it very, very difficult to live in the United States without status. It's difficult to get a job because employers are afraid of being prosecuted for hiring undocumented people. It's hard to get an apartment, to pay rent, to sign up for a bank account, to get a driver's license. So We've just criminalized a lot of basically every facet of immigrants' lives, and it just makes it very, very difficult to to just exist in our society if you don't have legal status. Yeah, and we we all just went through um, something that that did not discriminate whether you had legal status or not, which is COVID nineteen. And, and so I'm curious as, as to the impact of that on the undocumented community and what you've seen through your work. Yeah, so I mean, I work predominantly with individuals who are detained at the Northwest Detention Center in Tacoma. Um, it's a big ICE jail. There's 1,600 beds. Um, currently, they're not at capacity, but they regularly have been in the past. Um, and... I mean, the effects there have been huge. There's a huge outbreak happening right now. Um, I mean, if you think about the circumstances that these people are in, they're in these large pods where they're sleeping in sort of a communal living space with, you know, tens of people. 
um, guards are coming in and out of the facility. So they're potentially being exposed outside the facility and bringing COVID into the facility. Um, There's some access to vaccinations, but understandably people are distrustful of ICE and maybe aren't opting into those vaccinations. So it's been really, really bad at the detention center. Um, ICE has been beginning to release people um, based on some lawsuits that NERP has been involved with and um, some other some other lawsuits that have been forcing them to evaluate the health risks for people who are um, you know immunocompromised and subject to some of the other CDC um, risk factors but but there are many many people that are COVID positive at the detention center. Hmm. And once they're positive, what happens? Are they isolated? Are they? So there are processes for quarantining people. Um, so essentially, it's it's sort of unclear to us exactly what quarantine looks like. We've been trying to get more information about that. But um, a lot of times people are quarantined and then released back into the general population. But that's really difficult for people, too, because a lot of times when they're quarantined, they're on their own or they don't have access. They don't have the same access to the phone so they can, you know, call their attorneys or call their families. Um, so we don't have all the information on what quarantine looks like. But, you know, a lot of people are going in and out of general population in and out of quarantine. I think that's really difficult for them. Um, yeah. So that's that's all that we know at this point. Yeah. And now the Northwest Detention uh, Facility, that's something WARP is advocating to close. Is that correct? Yeah. So actually, as of a few months ago, um, I believe the facility is set or the contract is set to end in 2025, if I'm not mistaken. Um, And it's hard to say exactly what will happen at that point. Point. Um, basically, the way that it's set up right now is that the detention facility is run by a private company called Geo. Um, and this bill that I'm talking about sort of ends private detention, but there, there isn't anything to say that ownership of the facility couldn't pass to ICE, for example. So I don't think anyone's super sure what exactly is going to happen, but that is something that is advocacy that NERP has been involved with. And why shouldn't I, for those listening, like why, why would we not want to incarcerate immigrants? I mean, it seems like an obvious answer to me, but I just want to ask the question, like why, why are we incarcerating them in the first place? I mean, if you asked, Geo or ICE, they would tell you that we are incarcerating people that pose a threat to public safety or a flight risk. So essentially... Is that what you've seen? I mean, I don't... It's sort of a difficult question for me to answer because I don't believe in incarceration full stop. Um, I just Mm -hmm. don't think that we should put humans in cages ever. Um, But I think even under Geo and ICE's logic that is not the case. Um, Yeah, I mean, there are many people at the detention center who have no criminal histories. Um, 
and I mean, I don't really want to get too far into this because I feel like this is sort of buying into the, you know, the dichotomy that I was talking about earlier, about like deserving bad, and right. non-deserving and all of that. But yeah, I would say that, you know, I don't see their, I don't see a reason to incarcerate immigrants. Um, but even under geo and ISIS logic, a lot of people are incarcerated at the detention center that shouldn't be, um, according to their own rules. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's your typical work week look like as a supervising attorney? Yeah, so it's a big mix of things. Um, basically I supervise this very specific program. (laughs) It's a federally funded program called the Legal Orientation Program. It's basically designed to help educate detained immigrants about their legal options and their legal rights and sort of give them an orientation of what to expect in immigration court. Because like I said before, the vast majority of people represent themselves. So our goal is to try to connect with as many people at the detention center as we can. Um, And we, we do know your rights presentations and also individual interviews with people who want to speak with us to see if they might be eligible for relief. Um, and to see if we might be able to give them some more information about that relief or perhaps refer them to other two attorneys that could take their cases for direct representation. Um, we used to do that all at the facility, but since COVID, obviously, we've had to migrate to a remote system. So we actually run everything through a hotline now. Um, so in any given week, I'll have, you know, a couple of hotline shifts or I'll be overseeing people or observing people on their hotline shifts. Um, I have my own caseload, a limited caseload. We all do carry our own cases. Um, so I'll work on, on those cases as well and oversee my supervisees on their legal cases. Um, there's a lot of admin work and a lot of communicating with um, you know, the contractor, essentially NERP is a subcontractor for the legal orientation program. So there's a lot of communication with the contractor, which is called Vera. Um, so yeah, it's, it's kind of a combination between like managerial responsibilities, casework, and then hotline and admin work. So going back to this narrative of like the good or bad immigrant, if, if you could change the narrative, what would you want it to be? <laughs> I mean, I would just want it to be that everyone deserves to live somewhere where they feel safe and where their family is and where they can live a fulfilling life. And regardless of what they've done in the past, basically, I mean, I don't think it's that complicated. Um, and I think, I think we're very. It doesn't sound that complicated, <laughs> but it's actually rather radical in terms of the systems we have in place. For sure, yeah. I think we are very, very far from that, and I think to get to that point, we would need to really fundamentally reimagine what our immigration system should look like, and it would require a lot of more than in- incremental change. I would say for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So how do you see racism playing out in our immigration system? Yeah, this is a really broad question and one that I feel like 
could be a college class, to be honest. But I will try to give an answer. What's what's one hundred and one? <laughs> it's racism yeah, in the immigration system. Racism and immigration. Um, so, I mean, I will say that our immigration system historically has been built on racism and has historically been built on this idea of preserving whiteness. Um, you know, we sort of started with brief history. We started with, you know, the Chinese exclusion era. And then we sort of moved into this era of country quotas um, where we were very deliberately trying to limit the number of non-white immigrants that could come to the U.S. I think we've moved away from that. We've moved away from explicitly racist laws. I think especially, you know, during the civil rights era, we kind of had to do, we had to move away from explicitly racist laws. But at that point, the discourse sort of turned into the legal versus illegal, I guess, terminology. And... I believe that is sort of how we now talk about desirable and undesirable immigrants, but a lot of that is code um, because we have, we still do have significant barriers for many immigrants. Uh, for many, many immigrants are not able to access status and benefits in the U.S. because of very deliberate legal barriers that we've erected in their way, and I think many of those immigrants are from central southern or central and south america and mexico and because of that the sort of legal illegal rhetoric is sort of code for white brown um and a lot of that sentiment has been directed has been sort of manifested in anti-brownness there's also anti-blackness which has always been a part of our history and i think Timeline wise, you know, this has all coincided with a lot of panic about, you know, south to north black migration and an increase in policing and prosecution and incarceration. And that has not only affected African Americans in the US, but also immigrants, black and brown immigrants. So I guess that's all to say that it plays a huge role. We don't explicitly have laws that talk about white people versus black people versus brown people, but it's all still there. And that is basically, that's what the whole system has been built on. Um, so I would say it's very, very present in, in the system that we have 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned this conversation of like legal and illegal. And I feel like even the... Um, distinctions there are very misunderstood of what is actually illegal and what is legal because because of how complicated the immigration system is and the different statuses people have. There are civil immigration violations and then there are also um, immigration violations that have been criminalized. So this was a really big conversation in the last presidential debates, actually, um, which I don't know if it is really the main issue um, in the immigration reform discussion right now. But basically, um, crossing the border without inspection 
is sort of like in like a civil violation. And there's also an option to prosecute an individual for crossing the border without inspection, but it's rarely taken. And then there's another way to sort of request asylum, which is to present yourself at the border, um, which is slightly different than crossing without inspection. So mm -hmm. that would be arriving at a port of entry and presenting yourself and saying, I'm, I'm afraid and I am requesting asylum. So um, I guess when people talk about the legal and the illegal, quote unquote, way to request asylum, sometimes they're talking about presenting at a port of entry. And they're saying that that is like the legal way to seek asylum. Mm -hmm. um, but there are lots and lots of reports of immigration officials being very, very horrible at ports of entry and essentially refusing entry to people, even if they are seeking asylum and even if they are afraid. And so for many people, entering without inspection is the only option that they have, or they just don't know about the option to present at the border. And, you know, there's just many, many circumstances in which entering without inspection is the only or the best option for people mm -hmm. and we've talked a lot i mean a lot of the national discourse has been around police reform i'm curious of your perspective around ice reform um you mentioned it's like there are horrible things happening at the border that we don't even know about and some things we do know about like the child separation laws and um and some i'm curious as to to what you think about ICE, what we need to do with ICE. Do we keep it? Do we reform it? Do we defund it? I think we abolish ICE. Um, I think that, I think to be honest, any type of incremental change to ICE or, you know, efforts to reform ICE from within and things like that, I mean, I think at the end of the day, anytime we are just fiddling with the system that we currently have, all we're doing is choosing certain groups to be advantaged over other groups. And, you know, the groups that we leave behind are still going to be fueling this deportation machine that we have. And I think really anything short of like fundamental and foundational change to the immigration system is going to result in some sort of situation where people are being targeted and mistreated for their identity in a way that we say that we really don't believe in. And I think, yeah, we should think about a situation in which we don't have a massively funded federal agency with guns and badges and, you know, all these people that think that they're protecting America by, you know, separating families and tearing apart communities. I just really don't think that that's necessary. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. So, so what is one of the, what has been one of your greatest life lessons through your work at the Northwest Immigration Rights Project? This might be a very, very simple realization for many people, but it t took me a very long time to get to this point, actually. I think when I was younger and when I was thinking about, you know, what I wanted to do with my career and, you know, what I wanted to do with my life, um, I was very obsessed with the idea of having the most impact, like me personally having the most impact. 
And so I did, I would just obsessed a lot about, you know, does that look like grassroots work? Does that look like top down policy, you know, law, politics? What does that look like so I can make the absolute most impact possible? Um, and I think something that I've learned working in immigrant rights is just that in order for there to be any type of lasting change in any of this work, you need to have so many things working together and so many people pushing issues from all angles. So you do, you know, you need good politicians, you need good policy people, you need good people pushing up from the grassroots level, good people pushing down. And the idea that one individual person is going to be able to have a huge impact on a system that has been oppressing people for centuries is honestly like very narcissistic and delusional. So I think what you can do is sort of recognize that you're going to be one piece of a puzzle or a movement working towards some kind of productive change. And once you sort of start to realize that and accept that reality, then it sort of matters less exactly what you're doing or how much impact you're having as long as you're just moving in the right direction. So I think that has given me a lot of freedom to sort of just say, I like working with clients. I think I'm good at it. And I don't know if this is the most impact that I could possibly be having. I mean, it's sort of one at a time. But as long as the end goal is something that you really believe in, that's sort of like what matters. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I... I think I went into nonprofit work um, very similarly. I was asking myself the exact same questions. Like, how do I change the world? How do I make the biggest impact? And I think some of that is, for me, was stemmed from just some white saviorism. And I think, um, but I also think that it was a place to start like a place, a starting place for me. And through my work, and, and I've been um, lucky enough to have been to, uh, to be, have been educated around anti-racism work and to have um, continued that education in my work um, to kind of deconstruct that concept and to look at what part do I play, like you said, like what part do I play within a system of change um right but but definitely i don't want to stop people from dreaming of change making change in their community because i think it can be overwhelming when you look at the world and all For sure. all the bad in it yeah i mean i do agree that that's definitely especially in young people like something to foster if that's some you know if that's a thought that someone has that you know they want to make positive change in their community I do think that, you know, if you do actually end up going into the work, then you start to realize like, oh, wow, this is way, way bigger than me. And I think most people sort of have that realization somewhere along the way. Um, and I, I don't think it's I don't necessarily see it as like a cabining of, you know, a dream to make change. I think it's sort of more of a realization that it's not about you. Yeah, like it's not about how much change you're going to make personally. It's about, you know, it's about whatever, whatever the meaningful work is that you have chosen to spend time doing. Right. And 
the reality is that it just takes so much. It's just that the odds are so stacked against you, right? That it takes so many people doing so many different things together to actually produce that change. For sure. And I think that's one of the reasons I asked this question too, is that I think that when you go into the work of creating change, you're often changed by that work. And so asking the question, like, what's your greatest lessons? It's asking the question, like, how have you been changed by your work? You know, because Definitely. you go into this like superhero, or I went into <laughs> it with a superhero kind of mentality, you know, and uh, have come, come out of it much more humbled and much more, um, but still, but still optimistic still optimistic right i yeah i mean i think another another piece of that conversation is how much space should you really be taking up and what is what is the role that you should be playing so i mean for example like if you are like a white person who has no personal experience with immigration and you grew up with a lot of privilege like that does not that does not mean that you shouldn't be actively involved with this type of work but maybe like you shouldn't be the spokesperson for people at the northwest detention center right so i think that's something that i've been thinking a lot more critically about just sort of like my own identity and what role i should be playing and who i should be making space for and whose voices i should be amplifying absolutely and being very cognizant of how your voice shows up in the room like for sure for sure. Um, so what, what have been some of uh, the Northwest Immigration Rights Project's like biggest wins lately in recent? Um, we do a lot of good stuff. Um, there's sort of like a lot of different levels to the work that NERP does. Um, we do, we have done a lot of um, systemic advocacy through our impact litigation unit. So that's sort of more like suing the administration and trying to get good law made uh, that will end up affecting a lot of people in the long run. And then we have sort of our more direct services where we're representing individual people. Um, and then obviously we have sort of like my team, which is not even really representing individual people, but just trying to give, trying to give people the best shot that we can given the fact that we don't have the resources to represent everyone. Um, I mean, I don't know. I, I'm sort of biased uh, towards the direct representation part of the organization because that's what I did for many, for not many years, three and a half years. Um, and I just think that even though those are not really stories that you're going to see on the news necessarily, I think we do a lot of really excellent direct advocacy and, you know, we win a lot of tough cases, and mm -hmm. I think that makes a huge difference for our clients and for their communities. So I would say those are sort of the wins that I am the most proud of. Um, and I mean, I think there's also tremendous value in our impact litigation and also a lot of value in educating people on their options, even if they don't have great ones. So I don't know. It's hard for me to say, like, what's the biggest win? But yeah. I, think, I think we do a lot of good stuff. Absolutely. I mean, that's an understatement. <laughs> you guys do incredible work. Um, and I think we talked about this already, but what, what is your your hope for, for immigration reform? 
Um, my hope for immigration reform. Yeah, I mean, I think we did we did talk about this a little bit, but just I think that we need to really. I hope that we are able to really rethink and reimagine how we how we look at borders, the movement of people in general, you know, these ideas like abolishing ICE or separating the criminal and immigration systems. Um, I guess I would say I hope that we move away from incremental change and towards just like a more comprehensive reimagining of what the world would look like if we, yeah, if we actually just wanted people to feel safe and be with their families and be able to just live their lives. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that seems pretty far off, but I, I'm hoping that we are able to get there in the not too distant future. Yeah. So we just had a transfer of power in the White House, um, different administrations. And knowing what I know is that the Obama administration wasn't too kind on immigration either. Um, you know, not, not to the extent that the Trump administration was. I just want to make sh- hear what your thoughts are on this new administration and how people can help um, hold them accountable, hold it accountable. Yeah. I mean, I definitely was very relieved um, at the election results, as mm-hmm. I think many people were. Um, I mean, I don't think that Biden was anybody's, like, first choice, super progressive candidate. Um, and I think he's sort of been what a lot of people have expected. Um, you're right, Obama, while he was very popular and did a lot of good stuff. I mean, he really, really bought into that dichotomy that we were talking about earlier of Mm -hmm. like deserving and undeserving immigrants. And, you know, he had all these catchphrases about like felons, not families and criminals, not children and all this stuff like that. Um, And I do think to a certain extent, Biden buys into that as well. Um, And I mean, I think that just in the United States, like neither party is very progressive in immigration, to be honest. Um, There's just so many voters that are really, really concerned about or just really, really buy into this, this, you know, this dichotomy and this kind of like need to have us be tough on crime and tough on immigration. Um, I do think that there have been some, some really positive changes, um, things that you might not read about necessarily in the news because they're sort of in the weeds of the law. Um, There have been a couple of really monumental decisions by the AG uh, that have expanded asylum. Basically the Trump administration had really restricted asylum and made it so that it was difficult, almost impossible to win an asylum case based on being a victim of domestic violence or based on, your, you know, being persecuted on account of a family relationship with somebody else. Um, and the current AG basically vacated those decisions and re-expanded asylum law to include those things. So, I mean, I think there have been positive changes in that respect. Um, but they're just not, I mean, they're not very sexy developments. Like one of the most recent developments was like, 
you know, we now have this new mechanism back called administrative closure, where you can administratively close a case while it's pending. And that just doesn't sound very cool, but it's actually really cool for a lot of people because it allows them to live in the U.S. with a work permit and for many, many years instead of being removed. So, I mean, there are a lot of good things happening, I think, um, but I do still think that the that problematic narrative where we have like the good and the bad immigrants is still very alive and well. Um, yeah, and I would just I would just encourage people to sort of look up good organizations in your area that are doing good advocacy work. I mean, there's so many. Um, and, you know, communicate with your representatives about issues that you care about. Um, I think that goes a long way, longer than people think it does. Um, yeah, I mean, I am hopeful for the next few years. I'm, I'm sort of like cautiously optimistic, I would say, because I, I do... I have seen some good positive changes, but um, I, I just would like to continue to see more progressive policies. Mm-hmm. And do you think we should have any kind of filter at all for, for immigrants coming into the country? It's really difficult to sort of talk about. I mean, I guess there's different levels of like realism based on the system that we have for sure now. for sure so like if you ask me like should we have any filters on immigrants coming to this country like the way that i fundamentally believe no like i don't think borders make sense i don't think that we have the right to tell people where they can and can't go on this planet that we all share you know like that's just what i believe but is that going to happen like in my lifetime no yeah so i sort of have to dial it back and think like okay because I, I get this question a lot of like if you were calling the shots like what would you do uh-huh. and i'm just sort of like well i don't know like what reality are we talking about here yeah. right um but i mean i think more maybe more realistically like we have we have basically free movement of capital um we have had in the past more free movement of labor um you know we've had programs in which people could come to the u.s for the farming season and then leave afterwards and you know they had some sort of temporary visa that they could um they could use while they were here and you know we've like had more free movement in the past and i would say like maybe we should rethink that like maybe we could have that again i mean we had like the Reagan amnesty in the 80s, where if you had just been living in the United States doing certain types of work for not that long, you could just get status. Like, why aren't we considering things like that? Our entire economy is built on immigrants. Like, why mm-hmm. why aren't we thinking about stuff like that? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think if we're talking like pie in the sky, no, I don't think we should be restricting movement of anybody. But I think if we're thinking more more realistically, more attainably, I think we should just be rethinking programs that allow people as much free movement as we can. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'd like to end all of these. Uh, if you had a, a microphone to the world, um, what would you tell it? Yeah. In terms of what we've just been talking about, I would just con- I would just encourage people to, to just consider that 
there's just a lot of nuance to people's lives and I think we can be really, really quick to put people in certain categories and judge people for past actions that they've maybe done. Um, I would just consider people to think about like the fact that there's really nothing that like makes you better than anyone else except for like your privilege that has allowed you to have experiences that have shaped who you are. So like, for example, I look at clients of mine and all of the trauma that they've gone through in their past. And I always just think like, if I had had all of those experiences, I truly believe that I would have made all of the same choices and I would have made all of the same mistakes that you had made. And I feel like if you had had all of the privilege that I had had in my past, you would be exactly where I am. Like, I really don't believe, like, maybe there's a tiny incremental difference, but I really don't believe that it's significant at all. And I think that to think otherwise is is pretty arrogant of us to say that there's, like, something special about us in particular that has made us successful or law-abiding or whatever adjectives you want to use to describe ourselves. Like, there actually isn't. And I think if you sort of look at the world like that, I think it gives you a lot more ability to empathize with people because like that could be you under not that different circumstances, you know, um, or I guess very different circumstances, but, but if you had had all of those experiences, like that could, and that would be you. Um, so I would encourage people to like, just think about, just think about like policies, but just, just, the way that you treat others in that way of like, there's nothing that makes you special beyond your privilege. I love that. Thank you. Thank you so Thanks much for that. Me. And thank you for um, taking time out of your, your busy schedule to speak with me. Great. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed our conversation a lot. Thanks again, Emma, and to everyone at Northwest Immigrant Rights Project for all your work to make a more equitable and just world for all persons, regardless of where you're born. This has been another episode of Miking Change, and I hope you've enjoyed listening to it as much as I've enjoyed making it. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button and join me again next week as we work to put a microphone to the stories that matter.